0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to ask the question, do you need to have a background in finance to be the finance minister? Christia Freeland doesn't have that, doesn't mean she can't be successful. It does though make you wonder what are the responsibilities or at least the the skills needed to handle that job because very few people who have ever done it didn't have a background in finance before they took it on. We're going to be talking about why your food prices are going up because they are and what's changing at the grocery store because their changes are there. And we're going to ask the question, is the CFL really in peril? Some people saying the league is teetering on the brink of dying because the season has been canceled. I'm not so sure, but is it? Stick around.
1: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
0: When Chrystia Freeland took over as finance minister today and was sworn in, uh, she became, she did something that was highly unusual. Yes, becoming a woman in that post, that's a first, that is highly unusual what she's done, so good for her in that regard. But she's also become one of the very, very few, at least in recent generations, who've held that position without a business background, without running a large corporation beforehand or before politics or or doing something in a large financial scale in her past. And as I said a few minutes ago in the introduction, she's obviously a very accomplished person. She is a very intelligent person. But prior to being a politician, she was a journalist, not a business person. And again, I'm not knocking journalists, heaven knows. There's nothing wrong with that, but I can assure you I would not have the skills today to step in and become finance minister. So I'm wondering, is this a bold move by the prime minister to go to someone who clearly is his go-to person in cabinet to now fill a spot that's really important and that since she's succeeded elsewhere, she can do it? Or is this someone who is being put into finally a position for which she really isn't qualified? We bring in Ian Lee, who is with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. He joins us now. Ian, thanks for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks. Uh, Let me say this right off the top for you and I, lest anyone misconstrue what we're talking about. This has absolutely zero to do with her being a woman. That's not what we're talking about whatsoever. It's entirely about qualifications. And I got thinking today when she was being sworn in, can someone without a business background reasonably Mm -hmm. be expected to take on the role of being a finance minister? Um, I'm going
2: to give you a very nuanced answer, and first off, just to just, just to address the question of gender, I think of all the people in the Liberal cabinet at this moment, she is by far the most qualified to be the Minister of Finance. Uh, and I, I've, I study, I'm in Ottawa, I study public policy all the time, and I'm very aware of who all the members of the cabinet are, and I think there's no question she's more qualified than anybody else in that cabinet, including the Prime Minister of Canada. Mm-hmm just to put that on the table.
0: Okay, there you go. And I, and
2: I don't mean that as a cheap shot to the Prime Minister. She's got vastly more experience and training. Mm-hmm. She's a Rhodes Scholar, uh, went to Oxford. Trudeau certainly didn't. He studied drama, and, uh, and well, he was skateboarding or something, or skateboarding or whatever. And uh, <laughs> and she was a journalist with the Financial Times of London, which full sub- disclosure i have been subscribing to for years and read it's one of the two most elite business publications financial journalism publications in the world along with the wall street journal and um uh, she was there many years interviewing ceos left right and center in wall street and in frankfurt and london and so forth she went to davos many times i wrote about it that's how i know this i don't know her personally by the way and uh, so there, there's no question she's got uh, the um the, the background, if you will, the Welton the if I can use a German phrase, meaning the cultural you know, backdrop and familiarity. At the same time, and I will agree with you, um, and I am a member of what the British famously call the chattering class. The chattering class are journalists and academics and NGOs who talk and critique and analyze people that are decision makers. You know, and for those who are sports jocks, they're called armchair quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. And I'm an armchair quarterback because I'm a NFL junkie, and so I watch the games and I critique uh, football players, and I don't have any football skill whatsoever, none. Uh, okay, that's why I'm not in the NFL, never was. Uh, so I'm trying to draw a distinction between those who do things, run companies, build companies, grow companies, and those who, and it's perfectly legitimate being a, 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 an analyst, a pundit, a critic, um, you know, is, there's film critics and there's book critics and there's cultural critics and there's strategy critics and there's professors and journalists and NGOs and we perform a very valuable function but that doesn't mean that because we're really good critics and I think there are good critics around you can be a good critic doesn't mean that you automatically have the skill set to be a person running a, a large organization that's extraordinarily powerful and is responsible for every aspect of economic policy in Canada. It's sort of the distinction, do you have to be a former football player or hockey player to be a successful coach? And you know, it, you get into that whole debate. Um, if anybody can succeed with, uh, from the punditry class, meaning from the, um, you know, the chattering class, I think that uh, Christia Freeland will have, uh, the odds are, are in her favor. So I'm giving, I am giving you a nuanced answer, Scott, but I want to bring one more point out. I'm not even sure it matters. And, and I mean by that, I don't mean to be flippant or trivial. This prime minister has demonstrated very clearly, and it's been on the record, it's been talked about for a long time here in Ottawa, and it's in the, you know, on the CBC on power and politics and so forth, this prime minister does not want people to challenge him.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Chatting with Ian Lee from the Spots School of Business about Christia Freeland's appointment as finance minister, which is interesting for two reasons. A, because she's the first woman to hold the portfolio, but B, she has no background running companies. She has no real, she's written about finance for sure as a journalist, but doesn't have a background in that field, which is highly unusual for someone to take that position without that background. Is that a problem? Well, Ian Lee was just explaining before the break that, um, well, first of all, her qualifications, but then I had to cut you off right when you were getting to the point about someone in that position, second most powerful person in government, and their ability to challenge the prime minister and make financial decisions perhaps that don't fall into the wheelhouse of his choices. How, how do you do that if you're the finance minister?
2: That's the, the really interesting issue here. The finance minister is not just another cabinet minister. This has been studied in the parliamentary democracies, uh, the U.K., Australia, Canada. I mean, trees and forests have been cut down to publish the (laughs) books written about this subject, I assure you. It has been studied to death. And, you know, it's been said the prime minister is uh, primus inter pares, the Latin phrase, first amongst equals. Well, the finance minister is second amongst equals. Why? Because they control all the money. And if you control uh, spending of, in this instance, the government before the COVID crisis was spending $350 billion a year, a third of a trillion dollars a year. Now they're spending well north of a half a trillion dollars spending plus deficit and other revenues plus the deficit. And that makes you unbelievably powerful. It also means that the finance minister in the democracy, in the Westminster democracies, has to learn the most, like I call it, the most difficult word in the English language, and it is the shortest word in the English language. Hmm. It is two characters long. No, no, my colleague minister, you're not going to get the money that you asked me for. No, you're not going to get the money that the unions wanted. No, the corporations can't, because we don't have the money. And it's a very, very tough job. Very quickly, I'll tell you a story. I was uh, a true story. I was invited in, I think it was 2009, 10, and 11, uh, by the staff of the late uh, finance minister, Jim Flaherty, uh, to pre-budget consultations. And where I was in a room of 25 people plus the minister and his staff. 24 of the 25 people were CEOs. I was the only professor in the room. And it was off the record, I'm not revealing what went on in the room, other than one anecdote. And he was sort of being, you know, talking at one point, just in a very personable way. And he said he thought that being the the finance minister was almost as tough or more difficult than being the prime minister, because he had to say no to everybody. And uh, so it gives you an idea of the position, and you need a prime minister who will support you. Lots because, yes, depth. because
0: when you say you have to say no potentially to everybody, it's easy to say no to the 37 million who aren't as high in the scale as yes. you, but there's one person yes. you may have to say no to who doesn't want to be said no to.
2: Exactly. And the the fights between Flaherty and, and uh and Harper were not famous. I mean, Lester Pearson fired his Minister of Finance for reasons that not not because they didn't get along, but because he came up with such a radical left-wing budget. This was in 1965. The business company just went ballistic, and they lobbied and demanded and screamed and shouted and demanded that Pearson fire uh, Walter uh, Walter Gordon from a very distinguished, a very wealthy old family uh, in Toronto. And the one other time it happened was Pierre Trudeau, who had to dump his finance minister in 1981 or 82 alan mckecker and they were close friends and again he had introduced a budget that was very left of center the business community went crazy and they put on a full court press against the prime minister and said you've got to get rid of him he didn't actually fire him he moved him he did a cabinet shuffle but everybody understood he'd been uh, demoted and uh, so you need to be an effective finance minister you must be backed up by the prime minister we already saw the way that the prime minister treated bill morneau. With all those leaks, which many thought were very shabby, and there's been former liberal uh, people from the Prime Minister's office, not the current one, but I saw Peter Donilow from Kretschens' uh, uh, PMO on TV tonight, very critical of it, and others were too, that Trudeau uh, could have stopped these leaks and the way that uh, uh, Marno was treated. So she's going into that firestorm, that cauldron. And, um, so that's why I said, I'm not sure that her lack of business experience will even matter if Trudeau is actually making all the biggest decisions.
0: Well, then, and can I jump uh, in for one sec? Because I, I would, I believe w- with all the things Christian Freeland has done, I would think she has the, the cachet, the power, the whatever, to be able to stand up to him. At the same time, she was chairing the committee that okayed the we yes. scandal yes. money. And you say, well, wait a second. Um, yeah. does she? stand up to him you see i i think the issues that's confronting her and i'm sure she's thought about this about 10 million times she's
2: extremely ambitious nothing wrong with that that's not a criticism anybody who gets to that level in politics is ambitious i don't care if they're male female black white purple you know short tall doesn't matter when you get to that level that we're this is one of the most powerful countries in the world we're one of the 10 largest economies on planet earth we're one of the g7 and the finance minister is number two Like, you're at the top of the greasy pole. You're at the top of the top. Well, one from the top of the greasy pole. And you didn't get there because you wanted to be the librarian at the local municipal library. (laughs) Okay? So you're very ambitious, men or women. doesn't matter. And uh, so she's got a say to herself, gee whiz, if I say no too many times the Prime Minister upset him, he can demote me like he did to Bill Mornor, fire me. And that's going to finish my ambitions. At the same time, I think she's a very honorable person. And so she's going to yeah. be struggling with when do I speak truth to power to the prime minister and when do I bite my tongue because I don't want to alienate the prime minister. And I think and
0: we've seen that we've that. seen that and unfortunately we're short on time, but we've seen that we saw it with Jody Wilson-Raybould. We yes. saw it with Jane Philpott. We saw it now with Bill Morneau. Uh, clearly if you push too far for whatever reason in this government, you may find yourself on the outs. And as the result of some whisper campaigns and, You're right. I mean, it's, it's, I I certainly hope I am rooting hard for her. I am rooting absolutely hard for Christy Freeland because I, for two reasons. One, because it would be great if she could succeed, period. Two, because I'm really hoping that there are all kinds of rumors that the prime minister wants to spend a lot more money. I don't know that we can really afford to do that. I'm hoping that she has the power to be able to say time to rein things in a little bit and uh, let's get back in order.
2: That's exactly my my hope, too. I think she's more centrist than the prime minister, tempered by the fact that, as a journalist, she interviewed many, even though she didn't run a large corporation, she was heavily involved in, let's call it the capitalist system, by going and interviewing all these CEOs, big European companies, big American companies, in Wall Street, in Frankfurt, in London. So she's very comfortable dealing in that milieu. And I just hope, and her connections, I hope, will give her the the gravitas and the and the, the weight, to be able to speak privately to the Prime Minister and say, Prime Minister, I'm sorry, but this is a, just a bad idea. We can't go down this road. This is not, this is too much. This is not sustainable. I'm hoping that she will have that comfort and gravitas with and relationship with the Prime Minister, that she can put a, a check, a stop on his worst impulses.
0: Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business, really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for this. My pleasure, Scott.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: I don't know if you do the grocery shopping in your family, but if you do, you have probably noticed that as you've wandered up and down the aisles of the grocery store, prices are up a bit. Some things up more than a bit. Some things up a lot, like beef up a lot, the price in the last number of months. And apparently it's not going to get better anytime soon, at least according to my next guest who says a 4% increase across the board is what we should be looking at to eat. I mean, forget all the other expenses in our life that are all going up. Eating is going to cost you more. I mean, it always does, doesn't it? But it seems like it's really kicking in right now. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is is the senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. He's known as the food professor. He joins us now as we bring him in again. We'd love to have him here. Dr. Charlebois, thanks for doing this today. Hey, not a problem. Um, price in most things, I'm no uh, economist, but I do understand supply and demand. Price in most things is dictated by supply or demand. Are, are we seeing increases right now in food prices because it's more difficult to get the supply into the stores or is it because of the demand because we're all spending more time at home we all hear about the the quarantine 15 uh so we're eating more and getting fatter and wanting to spend more on food
3: (laughs) well there's uh we're gonna talk about uh what happened this year for a long time Uh, we're going to talk about the pre-covid era and the post-covid era and uh, so we're starting the post-covid era and uh, it, it's nothing like the pre-COVID era. Uh, when it comes to supply and demand, things were highly predictable. <laughs> now, what we've figured out at the lab uh, over the last few months is, is is that historical data is almost worthless now <laughs> because hmm. every single week, a new story comes out, and um, and because we're we're erratic customers, we're we're difficult to predict. Uh, one week a product can be become very popular, while another uh, it can be something else. Uh, but what is a constant though is the cost to produce everything. That pressure is real, and uh, and that pressure is actually affecting the entire supply chain from farm to f- to fork, and uh, and we're starting to see it, and that's why we're expecting food prices to, to go up. And, of course, uh, most economists would say, well, you need inflation to get the economy going, which is true. But the, the difference between uh, before uh, mid-March and now is that the food inflation rate far exceeds the general inflation rate, which means if prices go up, you will absolutely notice. So a 4% may sound like a manageable number for most people uh but when everything is getting cheaper or a- everything is not really changing in price that four percent will look more like a 10 or 12 percent
0: well and you know you say we're, how unpredictable we are as consumers i mean literally we're talking about how our tastes change which seems like the appropriate term when we're talking about food um you have pointed out that what we are choosing to eat is also changing. We're spending less time in the processed food aisle, more time in the fresh aisle. First of all, why are we doing that? And second of all, does that make it more difficult for the food companies to know what they're supposed to make for us? Cause we keep changing our minds.
3: Oh, absolutely. Now five months into the pandemic, we have a better sense of what the post pandemic market will look like. Uh, uh, especially in the grocery store. Uh, so we've just talked about food prices, and food prices are going to go up for uh, for a while significantly, and we need to be ready for that. So food insecurity is going to be a real issue going into the fall and the winter in this country, uh, no doubt. Actually, we do predict that uh, anywhere between 700,000 to a million canes will uh, feel some sort of food insecurity, uh, over the next 12 months, more so than uh, than before COVID, uh, it's quite normal to see some Canadians uh, experience food insecurity. But uh, the numbers are going up.
0: Food insecurity. Sorry, food insecurity meaning bad. what, Sylvain? What What does that mean? Food insecurity. They just don't have the food, or they can't afford it.
3: They can't afford it relative okay. to their income. So you basically have look at a at a food basket. Uh, a healthy food basket prescribed by Health Canada and uh, a a household or Canadian uh, wouldn't be able to afford uh that food basket because for example uh his or her professional situation has changed uh salaries have gone down or the person has lost his or her job temporarily or permanently
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML
0: talking with Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor, about what's changing in the grocery store. First of all, prices are going up, but also, as we were saying, uh, tastes are changing a little bit, it seems, which affects what people are putting on the shelves. And Sylvain, I was in a store the other day that went to buy something. Sadly, it was nothing exciting. It was a box of tonic water. Um, But because tonic (laughs) water, I guess, is not that exciting there was a sign on the shelf in the pop aisle and it says we don't, we're not carrying all the things we normally carry, just the things that are very popular right now. And it got me thinking when you mentioned this, is this something that you could see as being more common in the months ahead where the stores are picking and choosing a little more than just carrying everything?
3: Oh, absolutely. So the average, once you, once you get into a grocery store, you'll be watching, you'll be looking at 39,000 different food items. $39,000. Huh. Thirty-nine thousand. So, uh, what we've gotten from the food industry over the years is choice. But to give, to actually have access to choice, costs money, lots of money. Grocers actually carry a lot of products, and of course, all of these products come from CPG companies like Kraft Heinz, Unilever, Procter Gamble. Um, Pepsi, you name it. And so all of these companies right now are figuring out which products to carry and which product to dump. Just because they'll have less shelf space, the number of SKUs will drop just because it just costs too much to operate a store now. And we are expecting clo- uh, stores to close or to be converted to discount stores just because of how the economy is going. And frankly, the other thing that's happening is e commerce support an e-commerce strategy, uh, you need money, you need capital, and foot traffic will be lessened by e-commerce. So slowly you'll see uh, the entire food retailing industry uh, transfer or convert into a more of an e-commerce focused uh, industry. And that's why right now we believe that the market is overstored.
0: And you're saying with e-commerce, you mean food delivery, that you can get your groceries delivered to your house rather than you going yourself.
3: Uh, if you order food online, that's e-commerce. You can either get yeah. the food delivered or you can actually uh, pick up your food once ordered online at the store.
0: And one of the things where that hurts the store as well, I would think, is if you order something online... Chances are you're going to have your grocery list and go on and say, if you're doing grocery shopping, okay, I need six tomatoes and four onions and whatever else. Whereas if you're in the grocery store, you're wandering around and chances are, especially if you go to the store hungry, you're going to buy a whole lot of stuff you don't really need, but that it's impulse buying. That I wouldn't think is nearly as common if you're doing it online.
3: But it's very profitable for grocers, very exactly. profitable for CPG companies, and uh, that's going to happen less and less often. Uh, but let me tell you, if you actually go e commerce, and more and more people will do that, and we are expecting 2020 to, 20 to be an historical year when it comes to e commerce, you will pay more for food. I've actually been monitoring some, some online buying myself uh, in Halifax, in Montreal, and Toronto. And typically, if you order online and get that food delivered to your home, you should expect to pay 7 to 10% more for that same food compared to a regular trip at the grocery store. So there is a premium, uh, but of course you do get the convenience.
0: But just, I mean, just what you're explaining where we've already got an increase in food prices because of supply and about choice and everything else. We've now got this push on with more people doing it for delivery, which is a higher price, which means some things that, as you pointed out, that the, the shopping around the wandering in the store is, is profitable for companies. Well, you have to, they're going to have to make that up somehow. So prices go up again. I mean, every step along the way, this is like a series of dominoes to drive prices up
3: no absolutely and so there the 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 model the grocery uh, store model is slowly shifting and and that's really due to covid it was starting to shift before covid but covid really just put the entire industry uh, on warp speed when it comes to e-commerce and, and how you service a, a changing market. The other issue, of course, is telecommuting. People are going to be working from home more and more often, which means you're going to be servicing a very different marketplace. People, when you, you, when you work from home, you will consume food very differently. You're closer to your kitchen. You're going to be processing your food more often.
0: Which means more fresh food?
3: Exactly. So the periphery of the store is, is becoming popular already. We're noticing at the beginning of the pandemic, it was all about craft dinner and peanut butter and all the ultra, ultra processed foods uh, at the center of the store. But that changed uh, within a month. And now more and more people are actually buying the fresh stuff. And so this is certainly good news, but you do pay more for that food. But at Again. the same time, since you're yeah. spending more time in the kitchen, you actually are spending less money. On more expensive food, if you again, uh,
0: great for us if it's all healthier. But uh, you know, once again, something that adds more and at a certain point. I mean, housing prices are going up, uh, this price is going up, taxes are going, everything is going up. And now, if we suddenly see food prices go, I mean, it's all great that we're now possibly eating healthier, but this all leads to a, a You know, real t- to make this part of a real challenging situation for people that if everything is going up in price, including the necessity like eating, boy, this is, this, this is a tough situation.
3: <laughs> it, it is. But if you ease off on the snacking and you discipline yourself in the kitchen as much as possible and you actually run uh, a budget uh, with, with a lot of uh, rigor, you'll be fine uh, as long, of course, as you have a job. And that's the problem. We actually ran a survey last week, 42%, get this, 42% of Canadians have no clue what they're going to be doing or where they're going to be uh, next year in 12 months from now. There's a, there's a lot of uncertainty out there.
0: I have your next survey for you to do. All right, you ready for this? Yeah. Because uh, you may have done this already. I want to know what the food spending amount is on average for a person who goes to the grocery store before dinner or goes after dinner. <sighs> I I bet you that it's 15 to 20% higher if you grocery shop when you're hungry.
3: It's a theory. It's a theory, but uh, we've never tested it, so uh, game on.
0: Some PhD student in your school can can ride that towards their doctorate, and they can thank me for it later. And guess Uh, what?
3: (laughs) I can find easily. I can find hungry. PhD students. I'm sure you, (laughs)
0: that's absolutely true. Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for this. All right, take
1: care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Yesterday, as I say, um, lots of reaction as the Canadian Football League announced that it was not going to be able to sort out a deal to get a loan from the government. And as a result, there is not going to be a season this year As I said, lots of reaction to this coming from all different directions, all different perspectives. Nobody is better to talk about this and to bring in and to have this discussion than the guy who for the longest time was the play-by-play voice of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, just the beating heartbeat of the CFL in this country. Now the host of his self-named show in Regina, the Rod Peterson Show. It is Rod Peterson. Rod, how are you tonight? How are you doing, Boo Radley? I am. You know, it's amazing how many people put those two together. F- after a while, they finally go, "Oh wait, yeah, I remember that." Yeah, okay. no, doing good, doing really well. How's how's everything out west? Oh, it's good. I yeah? want to take two stabs at your trivia question. Sure, uh, take your best shots.
4: Samuel de Champlain. Any chance of that, or Dom Perignon? One of those two.
0: All right. Well, we'll, you know what, we'll see if uh, we'll see if that's right at the end of the show. And, uh, you know what, we'll, we'll, I'll send you a text to let you know if you got it right or not, but there's some, maybe some hints for some people. Yes. As they call in, um, when the CFL announced yesterday, Rod, that, uh, that the league was not going to be going ahead with the season this year, as I said, I mean, Regina is the beating heartbeat of the CFL. It matters nowhere else in Canada, in the world, more than it does out there. What was the response?
4: shock and outrage in a lot of ways, and um, <clears throat> uh, a lot of disappointment and sadness. That's what I'm hearing just in the last 24 hours. I'm, I'm not enjoying following the reaction from people, but I'm certainly fascinated by it. And you're right. I mean, I, we've learned a lot of things in the six months of the pandemic, and one of the things that I've learned lately is the CFL is the only league that a lot of people out here follow. They're not watching the Stanley Cup playoffs. They don't care about the NBA playoffs, and they're not even aware that NFL training camps have opened. It it is, you're right, all about the CFL. So you can imagine how those folks are feeling. Uh, They're wanting to blame, uh, whether it be the federal government or the CFL owners for allowing this to happen. Nobody's blaming the players, which is great, because they're not the problem in all of this. They're worried we've got a brand new stadium here that's still got a lot of money owing on it and and they don't really understand cfl business or business in general a great example scott is the xfl folding in uh, march and people kind of snickering at that thinking that it, this is a twice failed venture and then last week the rock buy i yeah. uh, bought it for 15 million dollars like they don't understand that Companies and leagues do actually reinvent themselves in the sports world. It doesn't happen that often, but I think that's what we're headed to here. But I guess to to wind up my answer on your question, they're worried that this brand new, beautiful stadium is going to sit empty, that the Rough Riders, that the league will fold. You know, I I heard some of the the talk coming into this. None of that's going to happen, but that's what they're fearful of here.
0: Uh, Okay. First of all, they might be paying attention into another league if once upon a time the St. Louis Blues had actually moved to Saskatoon like they were supposed <laughs> to, then they may be paying attention. But that's off on a totally different tangent. Uh, so many things you just said there that I want to unpack, and we'll get through them piece by piece here. Um, about the anger. Okay, so they're not angry with the players, which is great. Are you getting the sense they're more mad at the government or more mad at Randy Ambrosi or more mad at the owners?
4: Oh, uh, Who's uh, taking 50, the brunt? About 50-50 on that. I mean, Justin Trudeau's not popular here to begin with, carbon tax aside, and, and you name it. This didn't help. For the Trudeau government to deny the CFL the loan, that was a very easy target of people to just pile on Trudeau even more. And I think it was a liberal MP from your area that, that didn't support federal funds going to the CFL. So a lot of people are upset at the government. And again, those that do understand CFL business are upset at the owner's for really, Scott, I mean, you covered this league a long time. You followed it very closely for, I think, mismanaging this league to the point that they are in the bind that they're in. Because optically, you've got the big four leagues all back playing in various forms, MLB not in a bubble, NHL, NBA in a bubble. They found a way. Down to the CEBL, which played down the road from you in St. Catharines. their national championship, and the Canadian Premier League's playing currently in a bubble in Charlottetown, PEI. It just looks like to the Canadian sports fan, the CFL is the only league that couldn't get back playing. And why was that? Because they're out of money. And these other leagues didn't have to go to the federal government with their handout. That doesn't look very good either. So I think when I talked about what we've learned in the last six months, another thing we've learned, although I knew it, CFL has long been a hand-to-mouth league. And granted, nobody is prepared for the pandemic Nobody saw it coming. But half the people here are basically looking at the CFL going, how could you? How did you lead us into this mess or not be more prepared? So there's that to answer your question. 50% mad at the uh, maybe 33, 33, 33, to be honest with you, because Randy Ambrosi, I hope he survives this one. I really like the man and respect him a lot. And I know he lives in your listening area. and He may be listening now, but holy smokes, he needs to put on a bulletproof vest. I'm saying, speaking metaphorically. He's yes. taking a lot of shots here, taking a lot of shots here from fans. They just see him as the figurehead, Scott. You know, I, well, I, I believe... Yeah. yeah, go ahead.
0: Go no, ahead. no, and I mean, look, I, I believe... I agree with everything you've said. The one thing I would add to that is, and I truly believe this, if the real passion for the CFL was in Toronto or Ottawa or Montreal or Vancouver, where if you look at the electoral map, it's all red in those cities, if, if those... Cities had real passion, the CFL would have got alone. The fact that the real areas of great passion are not read at all, I think, caused not a malicious response, but a lack of motivation because there's no political capital to be gained by this for the government. Um, that did not help. That absolutely did not help. Um, but yes, I, I mean, also, the, as you say, the league. I don't know how you stash money aside into a nest egg or into some sort of safety vault when you're, as you say, hand to mouth, and you're barely able to get by. But boy, somehow it seems like there should have been some way to have some sort of safety net put aside there for a rainy day.
4: And that's the point, the reserve. And the Saskatchewan Roughriders have long been thought of as the financial juggernaut of the CFL. And they're really not anymore. And they're president twice now most recently being this week, has admitted that with some sort of financial aid here, they will be out of money. Their reserve fund will be depleted by the end of September, bled dry. And that really woke a lot of people up. But I also want to point out something. I've heard from two team pres heard interviews from two presidents in the last week. Sorry, in the last twenty four hours. Wade Miller of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers Rick Lawlisher of the B.C. Lions really blasting the government for not coming through with the funding. Uh, Way to the degree of, why did it take you four months to make a decision if you knew you weren't going to give us the money all along? Lawlisher intimating that the government dangled them, hinted that they were going to give money, but in the end said no. Well, I've also heard from the government side, too, and they're willing to give money, but they want it to be on the government's terms. This is a little to do with the golden rule, Scott. Are you familiar with that?
0: I am course, familiar the with. Gold, it.
4: Yeah, makes the rules. So this is a lot of it's out there for all of us to see. When the commissioner stood before the House of Commons Standing Committee on Finance and said we'd like 150 million dollars, it was literally give us the money. And the government was, well, what? What are you going to use it for? And Randy was like, well, we don't know yet. Just give us the money.
0: That was stunningly. Poorly handled because if you were trying to create people, get people's jaws to drop and get people's backs up by saying we can't afford to give money to a professional sports league, you could he could not have done a better job of hurting the cause. I don't think then if he had gone in then and said we need to have 30 or 40 million in a loan, I am, I would bet you, I would bet you they would have been able to sort that out back then.
4: I'm totally on board with you. So you know, you know, back to what the government officials are saying privately is simply that they are willing to prop up the CFL for all the reasons that we feel that it should. The iconic Canadian institution that it is, the amount of people that it employs, the $1.3 billion it generates to the economy in this country, all those wonderful things. The government's on board with that. But they have for four months said, you guys have to get your act together. And when I say it's been fascinating looking at the fans' reaction, I'm starting to become fascinated by what the players' reaction is. Most recently, Bo Levi-Mitchell, in a video, he is the reigning king of CFL quarterbacks, as you know. On, a, on the CFL's Twitter page today, there was a video from Bo saying we need to make this league better. You know, The decision yesterday stinks, but let's work to making this league better, making it stronger so it can withstand these things in the future. And I, I was like, bravo, Bo. We've had a long-standing feud, the two of us, but he made a lot of sense on that. And so what's next now for the CFL is to talk about it folding. That's not going to happen. Our teams going to drop out? Are we going to be coming back with a six- or seven-team league? None of that matters. What matters now is deciding what's going to happen with the player contracts and how this league is going to survive. There will be layoffs, Scott, soon, probably by the end of the week, and I'm talking about a wave of them. I don't see any other way that this could go. And how will this league operate on a bare-bones basis with the funds that they have? You've seen a lot of people step up and say they're committing uh, money, leaving their season ticket money. I've heard over 90% of Tiger Cats season ticket holders have left their money with the team. That tells you how much CFL fans love their team. Everybody wants to work together, but they don't want to see it going to high six-figure salaries to executives, dumb contracts to players, Right? This needs to be done right. We got an opportunity that, here for a reset.
0: But that passion is why I'm so confused by the naysayers. And there's, believe me, there's lots of them out there who say, you know, this league is now on the precipice of folding. It's now in a complete disaster and it won't come back. Because I'm saying, okay, you know, look, this is not a good year for them. But assuming COVID is under control by next year, I mean, different story if we're still in this situation next year, of course, but if you start up the league next year and things are back to some form of normal, there are passionate fans around this country and they will come back. And I I really don't look at this and say, you're suddenly going to be facing a league that's in crisis. I think it'll be, we had a blip and we're back and and I'm, I'm struggling to find the absolute doom and gloom. This is the end argument.
4: Well, you're hearing it, but that's just from people that don't understand the economics of the CFL. And, and and by the way, that doesn't mean they're dumb. I'm just saying they didn't really follow it. They bought their tickets, they went to the game, maybe they watched the games on TV, but they don't understand the league business, and that's fine. When you've got the commissioner telling the House of Commons we lose ten to twenty million dollars in a good year, like last year, you could see why people would be confused. I get it, I do. But and and by the way. There's going to have to be some sort of miracle donor here without a season. That is not that is not a falsehood. Now, for the longest time, I thought it might be the NFL. You remember in the 90s, the NFL stepped up. It was only $4 million back then compared to what the league needs now. But the NFL saved the CFL once.
1: Yep. I'm not
4: saying that's not going to happen now, but what I believe is Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment is going to become a major investor in the Canadian Football League. I've heard it from enough people and enough people that I trust that this is the wheels are already in motion for that. And it actually, the partnership was being formed long before the pandemic even began, going back to last season. I've been re- talking about this on my show. There hasn't been one person, and we're on the air in over a million homes daily, by the way, there's not one person who thinks this is a bad idea if it saves the cfl so
0: well yeah i I mean is is it no but rod is it not better this year and again when we talk doom and gloom with what randy ambrose said about losing money and i read a report or two that says you know they're talking about losing 30 40 50 million dollars this year if they played plus taking a 30 million so you've taken a if you had played you've got 30 million dollars you have to pay back plus tens of millions in losses, to me, that seems vastly worse and vastly more punitive and penalizing for the future than saying we're taking a year off.
4: Yeah, and that is the tall grass that the CFL is walking in, in right now. Hey, believe me, the CFL, the situation's not good. <laughs> Some things are going to have to change. And it's interesting you talked about next year, because there's a lot of people talking about 2021, whether it be as simple as what is the league like coming back or are the stadiums going to be open to? 50% capacity, 100% capacity. I would have bet you a couple of months ago that there's no way these current conditions would last into June of 2021. But Scott, we're six months into this and there's yep. no sign of it changing.
0: Yeah, no, we, we that, that part is true. Now, what happens? Let, let us just for a second here, even though I don't necessarily take the worst case scenario, but let's take that for a second. You guys have a brand new two hundred and something million dollar stadium. Winnipeg has a basically a brand new couple hundred million dollar stadium. I mean Hamilton does too, but it's it was paid for by the government as a as part of the Pan Am Games thing here. But those two out west are still being paid for. What happens if there's no CFL with those buildings
4: forever, or (laughs) or for a couple year pause?
0: Well, I mean, if if like someone has to pay for them.
4: No, oh, it'll be the taxpayers. It'll be another Olympic stadium that'll be paid on for years and years and years and years and sit empty. That's what it'll be, but I don't think that'll happen. I, I believe the CFL will come back. There will always be a green team that plays in this football stadium here called the Rough Riders. What the league is, I don't know, and it may still be NFL Canada. That That is a legitimate fear, Scott. People are asking that here. They're very fearful, that there will never be a team again play in that stadium. But I don't I don't know currently if the payments are being deferred. I would assume that they are. It was paid for by three entities, the provincial government, the city of Regina, and the Rough Riders. The three of them. Riders are close to having their debt paid down, but the province and the city are nowhere near ready. So right now I would assume those payments are paused. But you know, there there will be a soccer team here probably in the CPL. Concerts, all this what, what this was used for and at the very end of the day, if this ends up having to be NFL Canada, which I don't think will be the case, but that will be, there will be a team here playing in the NFL Canada. It's very similar to NFL Europe. It's not like those discussions haven't happened already. NFL Europe was a fantastic uh, entity for a, for a long time. It doesn't exist anymore, but I don't see why NFL Canada could not. Now, having said that, had David Naylor on my show today, TSN an insider, as you know. And he doesn't believe this. this is not going to go as far as the NFL either. And, and he also brought up a good point. The NFL has its own problems right now, <laughs> right? Like they, they got enough of their own problems. I don't think they're looking at propping up another league. But I'm, I'm not as concerned today about paying back these stadium loans. Maybe the politicians are. I'm not.
0: Well, let's hope, um, first of all, let's hope it doesn't become NFL Canada. We want the CFL to survive. And if it does become NFL Canada in a worst or almost worst-case scenario, uh, let's hope they learn something from, was it in Saskatchewan or was it in Winnipeg, where the NFL came and had their preseason game a year or two ago?
4: <laughs> they tried was to it to Saskatchewan, the Saskatchewan. It, so they went to Winnipeg.
0: Yeah, and charged about seven hundred dollars for tickets, and got about forty-two people in the stands. And the field wasn't ready, and they had holes in the turf. And it was, let, let's hope if if worst case scenario that has to happen, they do slightly better than that. Although I think it's fair to say that if it was NFL Canada, suddenly you might have people in Toronto paying attention for better. Or for Oh,
4: uh, bingo. I, I'm not against it, but I like the MLSC idea a heck of a lot more.
0: And uh, I honestly, I, I
4: mark my words, I believe that's the way this is going to go.
0: That is Rod Peterson. You can catch him all the time online on the Rod Peterson Show. Go look him up. I think you you can watch that show anytime, right? It's on a replay. People can see it whenever they want.
4: Yeah, it runs 24 hours, but it also runs on Game Plus TV network. It's available at Rogers Cable, Kojiko Cable. Game Plus, daily at noon Eastern, replayed at 4 p.m. Eastern on Game Plus.
0: Rod Peterson, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this.
4: I appreciate the call, Scott. Stay safe.
0: Uh yeah, you know what? Lots of uh, lots of moving pieces with the CFL. I mean, if you're a TICAT fan, I think everybody who's a Ticat Cat fan would say we just want things to come back the way they were. And I'll tell you something also if you're a Tiger Cat fan, why this particularly stinks. It's been a long time since a Great Cup was won by the Tiger Cats, nineteen ninety nine. And the team that was set to come back this summer had almost all of its important pieces back from last year. Looked like it was a team that was in great shape. Had depth at quarterback now because injuries were done. This was this looked like it was the year. This was the year that this team was going to finally put it all together and win a championship and season done. Well, I suppose the positive news is that next year, Hamilton hosts the Grey Cup and maybe it would be very poetic to bring back the team again assuming there's a season and end that drought here at home but there's got to be a season so we'll see where that goes
1: the Scott Radley show weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML